I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. All right, folks. On this podcast, we have two types of episodes. One where we talk to someone or about something that rides the line between Christianity and radical politics. Or other episodes where we just read something that only marginally relates to Christianity. <laughs> and uh, this episode is definitely the latter. <laughs> but it's they're important, right? Because if we didn't do that, you'd never get uh, the great episodes that we do on Marxist literature. So you should be thanking us. You should be. And I'm thanking you, Matt, from me to you oh, on behalf of our listeners. Thank you. And also with you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. With my spirit. <laughs> this week, uh, like I just mentioned, we're going to be doing one of those episodes where we talk about um, something marginally related to Christianity and leftism. We're going to be talking about a deeply under-discussed book by Karl Marx's son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, called The Right to Be Lazy. Yeah, and it's a great book. It's basically the apocrypha of Marxism. You know, like some Marxists know about it. It's in their Bible. It's in their canon. But a lot of them don't. Uh, so you can add this one to your big Marxism Bible and you can be just like the Catholics or the Orthodox and just have like some of those extra bonus books in there. <laughs> That's a great way to think about it. Uh, this book is really cool for a lot of reasons. I think first, because it's very short and easy to get into. If you want to read a book in like a few hours, man, this is this is the one for you. <laughs> um, if you're if you're feeling so lazy that you need to read a book about being lazy, this one is also for you. But also because it gives a really different perspective on labor that I think a lot of Marxists don't really think about or talk about. If you want to know the nuts and bolts of how like labor works and like the amount of labor time it takes to pay your own wages or, you know, whatever, all this like big, big picture economic stuff, Marxists definitely have you covered. But Lafargue's book asks a more interesting question altogether about labor, and that is, doesn't... <laughs> Doesn't work just kind of suck. And it's a great question to ask because within the milieu of Marxism, right, labor is really important because that is like the lever of power that workers have to pull against capitalism. Out of that particular movement of Marx, uh, you get all, you know, you get the labor movement. You get people like advocating for higher wages and for shorter hours and all that kind of stuff. And um, Lafargue is here to say, but like, doesn't work just suck in general? Shouldn't we just think about that? Like in the very big picture, you know, whatever. The the workers' movement, obviously, I think it's very good. <laughs> I'm here for the labor movement. I think people should be paid more and work shorter hours and get better benefits. But can we stop for a second and just ask the question, doesn't work just suck? Because it does. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, it does. It's not fun. People don't like doing it. Uh, and I think there's a lot to it, as we'll talk about in a minute, uh, both leftists and Christians alike have reasons to valorize labor and work in general. And it's tied to a lot of moralizing things. And Lafargue's book is great because he does just kind of appeal to like the basic fact of being at work and how much like you don't like doing it, whether you like it or not. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting to like, usually when you read Marx that's talking about work or when you read Marx talking about labor, you're reading these kind of systemic analysis, right? Like uh, Marx is going to tell you exactly how labor fits in the capital production process or whatever, um, what surplus value is, how it's generated by working people, etc. Lafargue is just pamphleteering. Like it's pure propaganda. There's no <laughs> systematization going on here. It's just a, an appeal to, I guess, like the universal experience of hating your job. 
And yeah. I think that is actually something that we need more of uh, in in Marxism and on the left in general, just a kind of, you know, uh, fiery uh, pamphlet about people's daily life. What you're saying is right. It is propaganda for sure. It's not a systematic way to think about work. And that's, you know, fine. But there is something that is in Lafargue's book that I think is um, maybe a bigger trend in, in Marxist literature. Like in the early Marx, you get all kinds of stuff about alienation of labor and like, you know, what is that experience like? How does like selling your labor to somebody else like make you feel alienated in your own body? Lafargue is asking, you know, not altogether dissimilar questions, mm-hmm. but maybe like on a different level. But you, you can see all kinds of other Marxists ask a very similar question to this like later on. I, I always think of there's this book I really love by uh, Bifo Berardi, who's like this Italian autonomous guy. Um, he has a book called The Soul at Work, and it's like the sort of phenomenology of working in an office and about how, how much it's bad. <laughs> Anyways, it reminds me of this book a lot, too, because it's just really meditating on what that experience of work is like. And it really makes you ask questions about, like, do you really like this? Is this how you really want to spend your life? And uh, the answer is always no. <laughs> That's right. Um, there's also a bunch of other stuff that we should say maybe at the top and we'll probably get around to, but not as much as it deserves to be brought up, I guess, most likely in this episode is my assumption. Um, but there's a lot of parts of this book that are pretty like they don't age well, I guess we'll put it that way. Um, they don't age well now and they were also bad when Lafargue said it (laughs) when he said it. Um, there's some anti-Semitic stuff in here for sure, you know, tied up to, Jews and the banking industry and so on. There's uh, some stuff on women that is <laughs> extremely weird. Um, a lot of complaints about how women just aren't allowed to like gossip as much as they used to or whatever. Uh, it's very bizarre. <laughs> where in one in one line, Lafarg does say, like, "Where all where did all the buxom ladies go?" <laughs> yeah, <And> yeah. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's also like some kind of backhanded compliments to indigenous people in here where he's like, on the one hand, indigenous people, they know the work sucks and that rules. But the way that he talks about them is pretty colonial. Um, And we'll talk too about how like, there's a lot of other weird things involved in that because of Lafargue himself and like who he is and where he's from and his own kind of background. So anyway, um, all that to say, if you do sit down and read this book cover to cover, like there are some cringe moments for sure. As you find with lots of other uh, left-wing literature in the 1800s, you know, a long time ago, like forever ago, we talked about um, some anarchists on here, Proudhon and uh, Bakunin, I think we talked about at one point, um, who have lots of similar errors. And uh, Marx, as well, um, has certain moments where he says uh, a lot of bad shit like that. So um, anyway, like I said, maybe we'll find kind of ways to bring it out, but just a, a heads up or a prefatory note that uh, it's a problematic text. We know that <laughs> and it's not a, an endorsement of every word that Lafargue says. But uh, I do think that, you know, there's uh, the the contribution that he makes is not uh, outweighed by those uh, extremely bad things, nevertheless. So we'll talk about Lafargue in a second, but maybe before we do that, let's talk a little bit about why work is valorized by the left in Christianity. Matt gestured toward it already a little bit. Um, Labor has this particular role to play, especially in Marxism, because it is the the lever of power. If you withdraw your labor, you withdraw a lot of power in the capitalist system. And it's also tied to more utopian goals, maybe in Marxism, right? That uh, working people should be able to kind of embrace the productivity of humanity and do something cool with their labor or whatever. Um, So lots of stuff going on there. And Christians also have lots of examples of valorizing work. I don't know, Matt, what do you think about (laughs) your Christian (laughs) on this podcast? (laughs) What do you think about maybe ways that work has like shown up uh, in, uh, in Christianity in general? Um, You know, how does it maybe valorize work? Yeah. I mean, autobiographically, I think there's a lot of ways (laughs) looking back on my own life and thinking about the ways that like the, the Christian place that I kind of like came out of definitely did push me to think about work in particular ways. But I think that like there's all kinds of interesting ideas that Christianity hands you about work and maybe not like hands you directly, but like has kind of create created like a big cultural scaffolding around it. You know, Max Weber or whatever. We'll talk about the Protestant work ethic and there's something to that, too. And maybe we can talk about that more in a minute. But I guess whenever I think about Christianity and work, I always think that the place that my brain goes to first, which is, I guess, maybe weird is the whole idea of, like, incarceration. Because, I mean, first of all, you don't get to incarceration without the idea of Christianity and, like, penitence and that kind of thing, right? And I think that that is definitely a great way to exemplify the way that Christians think about work and spirituality and, like, moralism. 
that you know if you're in jail you're in you're incarcerated you have to do some kind of work like you're working it off you're um you have to keep yourself busy even so you don't get yourself in any other trouble if you have nothing to do right if you have um if you have no job to fulfill or or function to kind of like busy yourself with then you're going to fall into temptation you're going to get bored and you're going to end up doing something that you're not supposed to you'll you'll get bored and you'll do a big sin <laughs> Yeah, you know, idle hands are the devil's playthings, right? We have all kinds That's of right, yeah. <laughs> things like that in our lexicon to uh, draw that out. I think, too, there's just a lot of Christian valorization of work in different theological vocabularies and with different histories. Like, for example, in Catholic social teaching, work is a really big concept. Um, it's tied to human dignity. And I think in some ways that are actually very good. Like, there's an assumption that uh, people should have access to work, which is very important in a global capitalist society. As much as it sucks, if you're proletarianized, boy, do you ever need to have access to work? <laughs> it's uh, pretty significant. Um, but, you know, it can be sort of valorized in itself as a, I think you're right to tie it to incarceration or kind of penitence, right? It's the kind of thing that, um, that keeps you out of trouble. Uh, there's a really interesting essay by Marcuse on authority where he talks about Luther and Calvin and their sort of theological innovation. And one thing he says is like the irony is of their breaking with the Catholic Church because it's because of its authority. They don't really like get rid of authority itself. They like put the bishop in your brain instead so that you kind of become your own policeman or something, making sure that you're not sinning. And Marcuse ties that to work, that at the end of the day, work becomes the outward example and wealth is the example that you're working out your salvation, uh, that you have, you know, the signs of grace or whatever reflected in your working life. So I think there's different ways that it is parsed out in different Christian traditions, but there is something fundamental to Christianity that is, at least in the kind of like modern era, you know, like the Protestant Reformation on and maybe differently before that, but certainly in, in capitalism, work is just tied to Christianity in a very like moralistic way that gets us into big trouble. Yeah, you know, and maybe it, it does for sure. It gets us in trouble to say that it's it's a type of moralism is right. And, you know, there's maybe some ways too that it's not bad either. A lot of Christianity is like, it's coming to work in light of the idea that we have dominion over the earth or something like that, mm -hmm. which is bad. I think that there are also a lot of Christians who conceptualize work in, in that particular frame, especially around the environment and like tending to the environment in like more positive ways too. I guess all I'm trying to say here is that Christianity has the capacity to like talk about work in a way that's probably healthier than, mm -hmm. um, than not, but still um, I think Lafargue's point still stands. Uh, doesn't work, just suck. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to Lafargue's point. Uh, doesn't work, just suck. And uh, we should introduce who Lafargue is, one of the, the minor prophets of the Marxist tradition, one that you don't read about very often. Um, Matt, why don't you get us, uh, get us going here? Who's Paul Lafargue? Yeah. Paul Lafargue was born in 1842, and he died of suicide, complicatedly, in 1911. We can talk about that later, maybe, or maybe not. <laughs> it's just a lot. <laughs> Interesting enough, Paul Lafargue was born in Cuba. We love it. I'm sure there's a great statue to him somewhere <laughs> in Cuba. I'd hope so, at least. Maybe not. It, hard to say. Lafargue's grandparents were from Haiti, which is interesting. They, uh, you know, they were there after the Haitian Revolution. Paul Lafargue was a person of color, which led to a, a lot of um, social hardship, I think, and lots of like uh, difficult familiar relationships, especially with Marx and Engels, and I think probably everybody in Europe uh, because of white supremacy. So maybe we'll, we'll say it that way. Yeah, his heritage included French Christian, French Jewish, Jamaican Indian, Dominican mulatto, all these kinds of things kind of like mixed together for this person. And Pretty a pretty interesting background, though, um, I think, to have as like this extremely like militant and interesting Marxist who's doing something kind of like wildly different than Marx himself. That's cool. Um, I've alluded to this a few times already, but um, Paul Lafargue was married to Laura Marx, which is uh, Karl Marx's daughter. Uh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to know exactly what to make of all the biographical information sometimes, but like the the familiar relationship to the Marx family is extremely important for Lafargue because I mean you know he's he's writing these pamphlets about work and all kinds of other things for sure like lots of propaganda but he is like a huge popularizer of Marx in France and also in Spain which are some pretty big deals I mean 
it's it's hard to imagine Karl Marx as a person in Fran- France that like people don't know about, but <laughs> you know they didn't <laughs> they didn't until Paul Lafarge came to tell them. Um, he uh, he spread the good news not only to France but also to all the Spanish anarchists. Uh, so very cool. He spent time at the Paris Commune, um, which is a big deal. He was like really involved in you know all of the good leftist stuff in in like France in the nineteenth the nineteenth century, just like you know strikes protests newspapers agitation all of it um and even uh, this is kind of later in his life but interestingly enough um he was in in and out of prison quite often for all of those things that i just mentioned but in 1891 he was actually elected into french parliament while he was in jail so <laughs> you love it um just like donald trump he did it <laughs> paul lafargue did it and i'm sure donald trump can do it too um but all that to say like i think if you were to like um you know, if you were going to talk to people about Paul Lafargue, you'd probably find a lot of anarchists and lots of like, you know, like wobblies and like those types of people who are very interested in him. Um, but in his life, uh, Lafargue was extremely anti-reformist. He was like a, a really straightforward Marxist. Um, Lenin spoke at his funeral. I mean, like that's it. That's maybe a great testament to like that he was like a Marxist through and through. But just the same anarchists think he has something important to say. And uh, on that. I agree. He yeah. Does. In fact, he was anti-anarchist, like he engaged in polemics with anarchism. Right. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that anarchists have picked up on it and on him. And you can kind of understand why the way that he talks about work, as we mentioned, is different <laughs> for sure than how Marxists tend to talk about it. And in fact, my guess is, you know, a text like this is probably not going to find a lot of good readers among a lot of other Marxists. Um, I, I would assume that Lenin, for instance, <laughs> probably would have liked to say something nasty about this book, but maybe didn't because, uh, or at least didn't to my knowledge because of the sort of personal politics involved. Um, Lafargue and uh, Laura Marx were also really close with Engels in fact, uh, Engels left them a lot of his estate when Engels died. So lots of, you know, direct connection. And Laura, we should mention, too, Laura Marx was a pretty militant um, activist in her own right and did a lot of work to promote Marx. So they were kind of like a they were a power couple of early Marxism, <laughs> I guess. Um, but why don't we get into the text itself and we'll uh, figure out <laughs> where he's plotted on the weird world of the left um so there's a bunch of interesting things here but i think the first thing i want to talk about is the way he talks about moralism and work because we'll talk in a second about maybe where like the materialist part comes out because lafargue has a really interesting note on overproduction and work but he kind of grounds it all as we said earlier in this sort of more existential reality right like work sucks and sort of how do we get there And he has a lot of really fun things to say about religion. There's some great uh, lines that maybe we could talk about in a second. But uh, one piece I really like is the way that he ties work to uh, moralism in ways that we were just sort of circling around. So here's a quote from Lafargue. Modern factories have become ideal houses of correction in which the toiling masses are imprisoned, in which they are condemned to compulsory work for 12 or 14 hours, not the men only, but also women and children. And to think that the sons of the heroes of the terror have allowed themselves to be degraded by the religion of work to the point of accepting since 1848 as a revolutionary conquest the law limiting factory labor to 12 hours. They proclaim as a revolutionary principle the right to work. Shame to the French proletariat. Uh, Only slaves would have been capable of such baseness. Uh, A Greek of the heroic times would have required 20 years of capitalist civilization before he could have conceived such vileness. Um, there's a lot of other lines like this in Lafargue. He really gets himself going (laughs) rhetorically, (laughs) but, uh, I think what I find so interesting is that it's kind of like if Nietzsche had been a Marxist, I feel like this is what he would have said, you know, like, um, there's this sense that, uh, the, the weak, the capitalists have kind of enslaved the strong, the working people, the proletariat by sort of like pulling one over on them or duping them with, with a certain kind of morality that, uh, working, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that you should have a right to, a right to work. And you should be really excited about working. And in fact, you should want to work a ton. Um, and I think what's really fascinating is uh, Lafargue has this appeal not only to the, you know, the fact that work sucks, but also he often appeals to these more like 
heroic times of the Greeks where people were just sort of, I don't know, like <laughs> lazy. You know, the philosophers were lazy. Um, he does note that, like, yeah, they had slavery in those societies, but <laughs> he, like, writes it off as a product of its time or something. Um, but, you know, you get this kind of, like, sense, just like in Nietzsche, that there's this, like, Dionysian energy in the Greeks that we've covered over with our modern society and our kind of made-up morals. And what we really need to do is, like, release our, um, I don't know, like, our pent-up energy into who we're naturally supposed to be instead of, like, all the trappings of capitalist civilization. And I think, like, there's some problems with the way that story is told, for sure, in Nietzsche and in, yeah. in Lafargue. Um, uh-huh. but, there, but there is something really, you know, there's a moment of truth in it, which is that, like, the powerful, the ruling class, they do sort of tell a story that is designed to entrap people and entrap the majority of people into a narrative and sort of encourage those folks to to identify with it right or in the marxist tradition we would call something like ideology that you get sucked into it and i think that is great like it's a a kind of critique of like the ideology of work itself and i think that's an important note for those of us on the left it is an important note um but yeah that's great to to lay out sort of like the moralism that lafargue sees in work i think that's important and uh, not only is, like, Lafargue pointing this out in an interesting way, but he's, like, actively railing against it, right? It's not just that um, there is a moralism about work, um, but it's also that it's, like, at the detriment to all people that we have to figure this out and, like, reject it. In the very first, like, the first lines of uh, of The Right to Be Lazy, he says, in capitalist society, work is the cause of all intellectual degeneracy, of all <laughs> organic deformity. So it's just, like, it's not even just that, like, we should observe this as an interesting thing, an interesting phenomenon, a type of ideology, but you have to reject it because it's like, this is the thing that's going to break your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you're you're going to trick yourself into working for somebody else and like, you know, letting them live high on the hog yeah, <laughs> while, you, uh, while you sweat away uh, working for, for nothing. I think that it, it is such a great, it's a good observation though, right? Because um, especially the the story that our particular society right now tells about money and work and you know who is deserving and who is not deserving is so off the rails like for example last week i was in washington dc and there was a um there's a hearing for starbucks workers and the uh former ceo of starbucks howard schultz and during the hearing uh bernie sanders was like railing on howard schultz because he was a billionaire and Howard Schultz was like, well, listen, let's not <laughs> let's not call my call me a billionaire. I mean, I worked for this money, he said. And it's so funny because no, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't work for that money whatsoever. That guy has probably never made a latte in his entire life. Um and I guess it's I guess that's why it's frustrating. Um, but it's it's great evidence of that like type of weird degeneracy that you kind of like fall into or you fall into believing. That like, yeah, I guess this this guy who does have like three point two billion dollars, I guess he deserves it. He worked hard for it. No, he didn't. That's <laughs> that's a very silly way to think about it. And uh, and because you you know whatever because you work for him or whatever doesn't make you any better or any worse. It just it just makes this guy rich. And uh, you got you got to be real about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, he also has some really good ways of calling out Christianity on this. Sometimes he says that. Christianity sort of goes hand in glove with this kind of thing. And then other times he creates some distance. Like I said, it's not a systematic text, right? It's a pamphlet. So I think Lafargue is just like (laughs) throwing everything at you and maybe one of the arguments will stick. Um, But in the beginning of chapter one, he has this neat little passage that I want to read. And the opening is really cool. Uh, It really sounds like the opening of the Communist Manifesto in a really funny way. So he says, A strange delusion possesses the working classes of the nations where capitalist civilization holds its sway. (laughs) This delusion... Almost as if it's a specter. (laughs) Exactly, but but the... uh, Well, it's the specter versus the delusion, right? The specter of communism, (laughs) the delusion of capitalism. Um, Right. He says, This delusion drags in its train the individual and social woes which for two centuries have tortured sad humanity. This delusion is the love of work. The furious passion for work pushed even to the exhaustion of the vital force of the individual and his progeny. Instead of opposing this mental aberration, the priests, the economists, and the moralists have cast a sacred halo over work. Blind and finite men, they have wished to be wiser than their god. Weak and contemptible men, (laughs) there's the Nietzsche bit again, they have presumed (laughs) to rehabilitate what their god had cursed. I, who do not profess to be a Christian, an economist, or a moralist, 
I appeal from their judgment to that of their God, from the preachings of their religious, economics, or free thought ethics to the frightful consequences of work in capitalist society. Uh, and Lafarge goes on to point out, like, you know, Jesus is out here praising the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, being like, you should be lazy, just like these guys. Um, he points out how God creates the the Sabbath, you know, the day to be lazy. And uh, I think that's really funny, too, that Lafargue is like, look, I'm not even a Christian. And like you guys are betraying the fact that your religion says that you shouldn't be so worked up about work. I think that's great to call it a delusion. I think is exactly right, especially like in professional fields that like urge you to over identify with your work. You can start believing this kind of thing mm-hmm. in like good faith. And it's so bad. This has definitely been my, like, autobiographically here, this has been my experience in, like, academia, because, like, because you're doing research, right, because you're kind of, like, pouring yourself into a particular body of work, and you're trying to produce something that's, like, interesting for people, you over-identify with that for sure, and you end up working, like, a lot more than you should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because you, you've tricked yourself into thinking that you're, that, like, that your worth is, like, tied up in this, right, your moral worth, like, you're you're better than everybody else at your university because you're in the office even during the summer trying to like <laughs> get a grant or plan a course or whatever. And uh, really what you're doing is tricking yourself into working more and you should stop. <laughs> you should stop because it's bad for you. Yeah, exactly. And the the idea, too, of it being delusional. I mean, Lafarge has a pretty funny through line in the text where he is like constantly talking about the proletariat being dumb (laughs) like not being smart enough to recognize that it's being duped and there's some problems with that i think uh you probably shouldn't call the working class stupid um but like also the sense of impatience is pretty understandable right and what he's trying to do with that rhetoric i think is to awaken the masses to say something like look you know they're (laughs) they're pulling one over on you and they're getting extremely rich by doing it and you should just not let them do that right it's a kind of like summons to uh to wake up and and stand up to that kind of narrative and and take yourself out of it i think it's cool to have that sort of existential critique in marxism as well it's not all political economy all the time and and that's important too yep super important to to do both because i think that this type of book really does help you kind of connect the ways that capitalism works on you in particular and that's that's an important piece of the puzzle right i mean it's great you got to know the system the systematic parts of it for sure but like knowing exactly what it's doing to your brain i think is worth considering yeah Well, um, we should move to the political economy part, (laughs) nevertheless, of the book, because it is in here and it's maybe easy to miss if you're not looking for it. Um, So in the book, there is a whole chapter on overproduction, which is a really interesting problem in Marxism. It shows up in Marx already himself. Um, He talks a lot about it. But uh, if you've been listening to the show for the last few months, we've been talking about it on here as well. Um, When we were talking about Monopoly Capital, for instance, the book by Paul Baran and Paul Sweezy, they have a lot to say about overproduction and consumerism. And I was kind of surprised, actually, that like, you know, the core of their insights or argument is found already in this extremely short book, Um, maybe not as detailed, but like in basic broad strokes. Um, so overproduction, as you can probably guess if you've never heard of it, but you can guess from the title of the term, is uh, capitalism's propensity to make too much stuff. Um, and it deals with that problem in all kinds of ways. It deals with it by, first of all, needing to consume it. So you got to find a market for it so you can unload it and make profit. But if you can't do that, then you just destroy it or waste it or find some way to get it out of circulation, get it out of the market so that people can't buy it so that you don't uh, create a big problem for yourself not making any profit. So it's a cyclical problem that Marx talks about a bunch, and like I said, gets sort of taken up in other ways later on. But the way that it is talked about by uh, Lafargue, I think, is also really interesting, um, because he sort of puts together the political economy part and the existential part in this. So maybe I'll start with the uh, the existential piece a little bit. So Lafargue says... Um, Because the working class, with its simple good faith, has allowed itself to be thus indoctrinated, because with its naive impetuosity it has blindly hurled itself into work and abstinence, the capitalist class has found itself condemned to laziness and forced enjoyment, to underproductiveness and overconsumption. But if the overwork of the laborer bruises his flesh and tortures his nerves, it is also fertile in griefs for the capitalist. Uh, it is such a funny kind of observation, I think, because Lafargue is saying, like, 
this propensity to like make too much stuff or to build a consumer commodity based society. Uh, if you're a working person, it's really harmful because you work yourself to death trying to produce all this stuff that you probably can't even consume. But it's also like a spiritual crisis for the rich, uh, which he talks about a lot. There's this sort of like critique of ennui or, you know, like rich people not being able to know what to do with themselves or kind of facing an existential crisis that they're, as he puts it, condemned to being lazy in a bad way. So like you'll see this a lot, I think, in the book where Lafargue is saying workers should have the right to be lazy and they should refuse work. And the other side of that equation is that capitalists should actually be sort of forced to learn about work and they should like their laziness is exactly their undoing. So there's these interesting reversals there. But uh, I really like that bit about overproduction, like living in that society. It creates these sort of existential problems on both sides of the, the labor equation. Yeah. You know, when I read this, I started feeling kind of anxious because it's like, man, if in the 1860s or whatever, uh, over capitalism is like overproducing and uh, people are over consuming things, think how much worse it should be now. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just feeling about like all the ways that uh, goods are overproduced. And um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's interesting, though. I mean, the the double move here is that like the workers should have the right to be lazy um the the wealthy the bourgeoisie they already have the right to be lazy um but they're doing it in this way that's like you know at the expense of everyone else there's another line that i thought was really pretty good this is from the very beginning of that section and uh lafargue says the blind perverse and murderous passion for work transforms the liberating machine into an instrument for enslavement for free men its productiveness impoverishes them I like this, too, of kind of like mapping the problem on automation and technology. Mm-hmm. Automation now is, you know, extreme. Like it's it's a it's a perfect science, I think, maybe in in like factories and warehouses. Right. There are engineers that can build you a robot that will make most things. And isn't that interesting? But like automation was sort of at the, the beginning of its like journey upward of its ascendancy to like the scientific form of like capitalist production. I think when Wolfarg was writing this. And, like, even then, Lafargue kind of, like, recognized that, like, uh, instead of weaving a particular textile and taking, like, five hours, you know, a machine could do it in in one hour or something. If you transform the way you thought about work and, and like, the ways that automation and new new machinery uh, cut down on labor time, what if there was just a way that you could think that this could be enough for the day? And I think that's such a wild um, (laughs) insight because no one thinks that way. No one thinks, like... Oh, well, I've created 100 cars in the time it would take, you know, to put one together by hand or whatever. And that's just good for today because I mean, that's that's not that's not the logic of capitalism. Capitalism always tells you you've got to do more. Yeah, I think it's also a really good uh, excuse to talk about the um, the analysis of technology and automation in the Marxist tradition. Every once in yeah. a while, you see like a tweet that goes around that's like Marx didn't know anything about automation. He had no idea about right. AI or whatever. And like, literally this week, I saw that tweet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, first of all, Marx had a lot to say about it. <laughs> it's a pretty major yeah. piece of uh, capital. But um, Lafargue here is like putting that insight to use in a pamphlet, right? Like it's pretty common knowledge in Marxism that this is a, a thing. And Lafargue's point is that uh, what should be maybe the natural conclusion is like what would take, you know, an army of like seamstresses is the example he uses to like make uh, a garment or something takes, you know, one machine uh, a lot less time to do it. The natural conclusion is like, okay, great. I guess we like don't have to do that. (laughs) Like we don't have to do that work. What a, what a great thing. But instead Lafargue says the response is to say, that's fantastic. It liberates us to do more work of other kinds. And that's like the big thing that Lafargue says, like, we can't take the victory. (laughs) like We can't celebrate the achievement that this machine liberates us from work. Instead, we double down on the need to find work elsewhere. And I think there's something interesting there where, you know, like I said earlier, in a capitalist society, if you're proletarianized, it's really dangerous to not be working because you will die. Right. You won't have money. You won't be able to buy uh, food or pay rent or your mortgage or whatever. And so you're constantly like looking for more work. uh, And in some cases, you're compelled to do work that you don't want to do, or you know, that is genuinely dangerous and so on and so forth. And I think Lafargue is making a great point about how that like, you know, the psychology of being proletarianized can also like force you to accept your chains rather than throw them off. And I think that's also just a, 
a unique insight and and something that is like a good thing to maybe point back at people who are like, well, Marx couldn't understand anything like automation. Like the Marxist tradition has a way of talking about it. And, you know, it, it talks about it in a way that is uh, liberating, um, although maybe not in like a weird left accelerationist thing, but that <laughs> maybe that's an aside we don't need to go down. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, I think it's important to recognize this stuff's already coming out in the 1800s. I think that's important. My academic background is like studying the history of technology. And I always feel like really weird when people start talking about, um, you know, being too utopian about about machines and automation and all kinds of things like that. Because I think in a way that a lot of people don't realize, even automation has a real human cost and uh, capitalists never want to show you that either. But anyways, I think still like the point that Lafargue is making is exactly right. Um you should t- take the win. Stop working. <laughs> don't make more if you don't have to. There's no point. It's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it is clearly, I mean, it is, I think, uh, a, the definition of delusion, though, right? That, like, mm-hmm. you think that you have to produce more, but, like, for who, for what, why, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all these questions should occur to you, but uh, you never do. The other thing that I think is interesting, too, though, uh, you were saying a minute ago about the, like, psychology of the of the proletariat, I think is is good, Something that he calls out a bunch of times in this book is just that, like, the idea that, um, like, the the labor movement is, like, always asking for too little or always contextualizing mm-hmm. their demands, like, kind of wrong. And to me, that's, um, you know, okay, listen, if you're a leftist intellectual and you're writing theory, you shouldn't recommend <laughs> what workers should do. That's just, it's bad form and you're going to end up looking dumb. So there's that that to it. But it is, you know, because it's a historical text, because he's, you know, approximate to Marx, I guess I'll let it slide. And he's he's also in the shit with them, too, right? Like, he's out it's striking true. and it's everything true. else. Yeah. And, like, in jail and whatever. Yeah. yeah. So there's he has more skin in the game than, than people, like, making a YouTube essay or a podcast or whatever. But all that to say, I think that's a really interesting intervention to be like, well, you know, you can ask for higher wages. Sure. You can ask for better benefits. You can ask for shorter, you know, work time. But, like... You should be asking bigger questions like, why are you doing this in the first place? You know, like <laughs> the underlying assumptions uh, that go unquestioned, uh, I think, are, are worth asking if you're a person who is, you know, really fighting for your uh, for control over your labor power. Yeah, I mean, that's the political education piece as well, right? That like, yeah, you know, workers need short term gains, but they also need a long term vision of what it would mean to have a society run by working people. Uh, I always think of that line in. um Dang, the name of the text that is very famous is escaping me, but the <laughs> real Lenin heads will remember it. Um, there's a line in one of Lenin's extremely famous essays where he talks about <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, there, there's this accusation that like, oh, well, working people, like they're too busy working to like understand any of this stuff about like putting society together in a different way or really thinking through what it, mean to, what it would mean to have a worker controlled society. And Lenin's solution is like, yeah, I don't know, like a political party should just pay some workers to like read a book and like skip a shift, you know, like if it's as simple as that, like having more time, then we should build a movement that will, you know, make sure that they have the time to do it. So it's kind of like not shrinking back from the problem, but meeting it head on, I guess, in that way. And you get that sense that Lafargue is kind of saying that, too. You know, we should be asking for more. Um, All right. So a little bit more on the uh, political economy piece. So there's lots of existential stuff going on. But uh, there's another cool thing where Lafargue anticipates conversations about imperialism that will really get going in the 20th century. So uh, I'll just pull out one quote here. He says, confronted with this double madness of the laborers killing themselves with overproduction and vegetating in abstinence, the great problem of capitalist production is no longer to find producers and to multiply their powers, but to discover consumers to excite their appetites and create in them fictitious needs. Since the European laborers shivering with cold and hunger refuse to near the stuffs they weave, uh, to drink the wines from the vineyards they tend, the poor manufacturers in their goodness of heart must run to the ends of the earth to find people to wear the clothes and drink the wines. (laughs) Europe exports every year goods amounting to billions of dollars to the four corners of the earth to nations that have no need of them. But the explored continents are no longer vast enough. Virgin countries are needed. European manufacturers dream night and day of Africa, of a lake in the Sahara Desert, of a railroad to the Sudan. They anxiously follow the progress of Livingston, Stanley, de Chelou. They listen open-mouthed to the marvelous tales of these brave travelers. Um, 
I think this is actually really important, and I never really caught this until rereading it, but this is a problem that you get uh, addressed by Rosa Luxemburg, very famously, and then, again, in some other people, like David Harvey talks a lot about this kind of mechanic, and then uh, Brandon Sweezy in a different sort of way, um, and lots of other people, too. But the key, basically, is that when capital has a problem of overproduction, it's got too much stuff, it needs to find people to buy it, uh, to consume it. And it has to sort of deal with its surplus capital by dumping it somewhere else. Um, and uh, it needs to constantly expand in order to do that. So there's this kind of like necessary imperialist logic tied up with capitalism so that a capitalist mode of production couldn't really happen without the ability to expand into new markets, to find new markets, to find new consumers and so on. And the fact that Lafargue is actually making that observation as early as this, you know, maybe not in as detailed a way. And there's a few parts missing that will be filled in in the 20th century by all those thinkers I mentioned. Uh, I think it's pretty impressive, nevertheless, that he's sort of picking up on that already in this text and noting that capitalism has this economic need to, to keep on expanding in these arbitrary ways. You know, you get the sense that it's like the irrationality of the system it really, really is like getting under his skin. And I think it's cool that he anticipates that imperialist critique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is very cool. Yeah, I mean, and the piece that's made missing, too, is that, like, not only are they are you constantly looking for new markets, new people to consume, but also new people to produce new, you know, new things to produce and so on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's great. Great to see it. Um <laughs> like like we said, Lafargue is not like a systematic thinker in all of this, but uh, it's great to see that he gets to the right the right point a, a lot in this <laughs> book, and uh, it's good to see. Yeah, um, two more bits on that, and then we can move to maybe Lafargue's vision of a <laughs> a socialist utopia as much as he gives it. Um, so he also talks about consumerism a lot in this text, and he will talk a bit about, I guess what I just mentioned, that quote about uh, needing to create fictitious needs. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something we saw in the Brandon Sweezy book, um, and you see in all kinds of, maybe that's probably the one thing that, like, all Marxists are good at talking about, is, <laughs> like, advertising, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, that uh, you don't really need a thousand brands of maple syrup, but guess what? The market is going to make them, and it's going to make you want them. Um, so that's great. There's this great critique, too, of capitalists uh, basically being being burdened by having to consume and the production of luxury goods that is arbitrary all because of, you know, the dumb logic of capitalism. So that's great. It's all in there. There's also this really interesting point about how um, the the sort of enemy of capitalism is the working class. And as you said at the top of the show, Matt, like he had visited the Paris Commune, you know, he was already involved in real revolutionary struggle. Uh, he makes a, an interesting observation that uh, Belgium is like considered by all of Europe to be a neutral nation. It's not going to war with anybody. And nevertheless, it has like a gigantic army. And he's like, why? Why is that? And the answer that he gives is that they fear the working class just, you know, up and dropping out or doing another Paris commune or whatever. And uh, he talks, too, about, like, Paris being turned into a fortress. And the fortress is not to protect Paris against an invading country. It's to protect it against, you know, the workers. <laughs> it's to protect the rich against uh, working people deciding to do something different. And I think that's really important, too. Like, you get this sense in Lafargue that, especially in the overproduction chapter, there's this coming together of the economic logic of capitalism, the expansionist logic of capitalism, and then the uh, the militarizing piece of it that all sort of come together in just a few, you know, short pages. So anyway, just neat to, like, see that all coming together. I guess I just had this assumption in my own brain that Marxism just took longer to figure that out. Uh, and I guess it didn't. Um, Marx's son-in-law figured it out. <laughs> Drawing for Marx. <laughs> so it's all, all there already. It is all there already. It's great. Um, I'm sure I'm sure Marx read this. and He probably didn't like it. I, I should have. I didn't. I didn't look that up. I should have I should have looked to see what Marx's actual like response to this was. Um, but Marx was always like grumpy about everything. So um, who knows? Who knows what he said? <laughs> Maybe we'll report back in the future. Do you know, Dean? Uh, I don't. Let me see. Actually, let's look it up right now. Live. All right. We've looked it up. 
And coincidentally, the book was published in 1883 and also Marx died in 1883. So if he read it and commented on it, I don't know, but he would have been <laughs> crabby already, I guess. Yeah. Uh, hard to say. Marx is in really bad health towards the end of his yeah. life, too. So I don't know if he didn't read it. You would not be surprised, I guess. He was way too busy reading about uh, Russian peasants at that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trying <laughs> trying to finish uh, the third volume of Capital and then not doing it. <laughs> So far, we have this on the table, right? We have work sucks. I know. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the words of Blink-182, there's a, a moralism that you get from Christianity and from capitalism uh, that you know tries to tell you that, that work is really important for who you are and being a good person. Um, being idle is probably the worst thing you can imagine, right? Um, but uh, Paul Lafargue says work is actually bad. It tricks it, it, Capitalism tra- tricks you into like thinking it's good. Um, but I guess where where are we at the end of this conversation? Like, what is it that like Paul Lafargue is like looking for? I think in this uh, this whole uh, pamphlet, I guess about uh, being lazy. Yeah, well, just like his father in law, he will not tell you how to build a socialist state, but um, he does maybe give you some glimpses. But it is all very funny. I think the last chapter of this book is one of the most fun. It's called "New Songs to New Music." <laughs> already great um not the kind of thing that you would name a blueprint for building a different society and uh in it he just kind of gestures in a lot of different directions but it's clearly like his most satirical or like funniest part of the book and the the moral that he comes to of his own story is that workers have been you know forced into capitalist virtue right they've been disciplined or incarcerated or sort of uh punished uh punitively punished by work in order to make money for uh the ruling class um and so what we need is to borrow a nietzschean phrase a a transvaluation of values um maybe it's not exactly right to map that so closely but again i just like (laughs) can't help but hear nietzsche (laughs) when i read it it's a great master's thesis though oh my gosh it's true that together somebody it's free to somebody else i'm not gonna write it that's for sure um the idea is that workers should really indulge their vices, right? They should throw off that moralism, throw off the virtues that they've been forced to learn and just embrace their natural state of being lazy. They should quit doing work. They should, uh, you know, I don't know, embrace their passions, etc. And on the flip side, capitalists should actually be forced to do work. Um, and the work should be like very grueling labor. <laughs> Lafargue says, <laughs> like uh, he says, they should basically like learn to clean toilets, do all the stuff that like workers don't want to do anymore because they need to sort of be chastened. Like they they gave in too much to their vices, and so they have to uh, you know get through some of that discipline themselves. So there's like I said, no system systematizing in this text. It's not as though like work is you know equals bad and lazy equals good in this uncomplicated way. But I think what Lafargue is really saying is that workers should have a right to be lazy, that they should be allowed to exercise. And right now they can't, right? They can, they're can they locked into the right to work and that's all. And it's pretty interesting anyway that he sort of ends there. Like I said, it's, it's very satirical, very silly. Like he talks about how, you know, we're still going to need to have like, um, like public institutions. He was a statesperson himself, right? Uh, but uh, all these capitalists should have to like clean all the bugs out of parliament. <laughs> that's how he puts it. They should all be uh, exterminators, basically. So um, that's Lafargue's big socialist utopia. Uh, working people who've been working, they just get to sit around and do whatever they want, and the capitalists should have to uh, learn how to, I don't know, pick up a plunger. Yeah, uh, you can definitely see the Christian logic in that, though, uh, at the end of the day, right? <laughs> yeah. Like the people, the people who they've had good things their entire life, uh, they've already kind of enjoyed it all. <laughs> They ha- now that's clean the toilet and the and the workers who haven't now they get to enjoy everything. Uh, truly, truly, I tell you, this is the kingdom of God. <laughs> it's the Magnificat passage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something I was thinking about a little bit though. This is like maybe my own <laughs> my own anxiety about the whole thing. Uh, you know, the idea of being lazy, the idea of idleness. I guess I was thinking a lot about that. About like, what does that actually mean within this text? Um, like, what are the things that Paul Lafargue is imagining as being lazy? And I was thinking about that, especially with regard to the like false needs. And it's like, you know, I think for a lot of people being lazy is like consuming things. Right. And that gave me a lot of anxiety to think about like, 
Um, my idea of being lazy is like sitting around all day and playing video games, but it's like, is that really being lazy? Or am I really <laughs> just like enjoying consumption? <laughs> but anyways, I think it's a it's a um, a great virtue to chase after, right? Uh, to to try to practice a little bit more laziness in your life, no matter what it looks like. <laughs> askew askew the um, the anxiety that it might cause you, <laughs> and uh, just just try to get down to not doing anything. Yeah, you know, in the socialist utopia, like for sure, we should all beat Elden Ring 30 times. And uh, just like in the great eternal beyond, eventually you'll get bored of that and you'll have to go outside and touch grass. And I think that is the that's the laziness <laughs> that Lafargue is after the moment where you do finally go outside and like figure out what it means to be like a flesh and blood thing in the world. Um, that's the kind of thing that capitalism alienates you from all the time. Right. And the idea mm. is like we have to figure out how to do that. There are, there are a lot of interesting parts in this book where Lafargue is always kind of like, I don't know how to put it. Like he's not like anti-civilization, but he's always pointing to like the categories of the barbarians against the Romans, um, indigenous people against the colonizers, right? Like the people who are outside of civilization, somehow those are the people who like have it figured out. Like (laughs) you shouldn't work. And it's these dang Christians who are like, beating everybody into uh, submission to the delusion of work. And I think that is maybe the the thing to look at. Like, I don't think Lafargue is saying we have to, you know, rewind history, right? Like, he's not a Luddite. He thinks technology is the thing that actually liberates us from work. He's an industrialist at the end of the day in that respect. Uh, but there's this sense that we have to sort of take what freedom that gives us and, like, use that to get back in touch with whatever it means to be a human being. I think there's something to that that resonates with... I don't know, my aspirations, <laughs> even if not my, my actuality. I'm not touching a lot of grass these days myself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, there's definitely a type of romanticism to that, I think, um, of just like chilling and like hanging out <laughs> and like and not working and sort of leave it, living like a more like uh, a free lifestyle or something. But like practically speaking, though, I think, I mean, for Lafargue specifically, I mean, coming from that, like the more political economy focused chapter, it does seem like, you know, you could just work less hours. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you work eight hours a day. Well, I mean, that's that's our that's our work paradigm. But like, what if you just worked like four? What if you worked two? What if you only worked four days a week or three days a week? Man, great questions. Great (laughs) things to start thinking about um, in terms of like, what would you actually demand or what would you want? What would a good life that's free from like the the shackles of overwork actually look like. And uh, it's great to think about. Yeah, you know... <laughs> I don't know how to get there, but uh, not it's ball of hard, but... <laughs> One thing that just made me think about toward the end here, too, is just recently in Colombia, Petro was trying to pass legislation that would reduce the working day to nine hours a day because it is not eight hours. It's not even nine hours. And he was facing a ton of opposition from all the people that you can guess, um, the business class and so on. Uh, and I think the other side of this, maybe reading it in the 21st century is like when we think about imperialism, when we think about the expansion of capitalism, it just is true that like, if you're closer to the core of the economy, uh, you get to maybe even enjoy being liberated from work more than the people who are on the, the edges of it. Right. The people who are like closer to the, the frontiers of capitalism, Um, And I think that's important also as good anti-imperialist folks is to like recognize Mm -hmm. like what (laughs) how does our right to be lazy also depend on the demand to work even more than we do uh, in a regular job in in worse conditions in other parts of the world. And yeah, just something to kind of (laughs) not to feel guilty every time you're being lazy for sure. I think that sucks. But like just to be mindful of how the economy, you know, unevenly even distributes its uh, demands for work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking too, like, this is completely out of left field, but I was, uh, I went to the UK a few weeks ago, and I was in Scotland, and I was reading about the, the labor movement there. And after World War II, that's when the um, the big move to, like, solidify and legalize the eight-hour workday happened. But it happened because there are all these people returning from war and like all of the uh, people who were formerly like making ships and munitions, like that work wasn't there. So they wanted to cut back to the eight hour workday so that uh, everyone had like more, like a piece of the pie, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, because there was, there was less work to do, but like um, that, but cutting, cutting work hours meant that more people could work. And uh, I think there's something to that though, Mm -hmm. even, even in terms of, um, 
imperialism and like the uneven distribution is that you know cutting hours some places just means that like more people could work a little bit more you know mm-hmm. or like you could take a you could take a piece of that pie where maybe you don't have it you could uh take a break from your email job and you could do you know different type of work for a little bit mm-hmm. something something yeah I, I don't know all to say it's complicated but like I, I guess it's like um the book itself is a really interesting invitation to think about how work is distributed and like what is socially necessary to produce and how much should any one person be doing? Man, great questions to be asking <laughs> um, beyond just like, what should the minimum wage be or, or whatever? Yeah. Lafargue even points out already in this text that there had been studies in the 1800s, um, which was also news to me that showed that uh, more work time doesn't mean more productivity, that labor time isn't tied to productivity, which is wild to me because that's like a conversation that people are having now as though it's the most novel thing to think. Um, And people always talk about that with the idea of reducing the work week from, you know, 40 hours to 30 hours or 35 hours or whatever it might be. Um, And there are studies all over the place that show working like whatever, I don't know what they are, five or six hours isn't like more productive than working eight hours, right? So there's this like data on it. And Lafargue is is saying the same thing about the difference between working 10 hours as opposed to like 12 hours, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. there's something to that as well, that uh, the idea that sort of work equals productivity and vice versa is also like, Basically just, you know, it's a lie that the capitalist warden tells to, like, keep everybody in in the prison of labor. And uh, it's good to, you know, let the captives go free, right? We've got to <laughs> close, yeah. close the prisons of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to keep belaboring this point either, but, like, uh, there's a great chart from the Economic Policy Institute. Um, uh, I'll link it in the show notes, maybe. But there's a chart. It's called The Gap Between Productivity and a Typical worker, Worker's Compensation um, has increased dramatically since 1979. So since 1979, productivity has um, gone up 64%, mm. while um, hourly pay is only going off 17%. The The rise in productivity, I think, is the wild thing, right? That, like, even since 1980, productivity has gone way up, and maybe it just shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's like, what are we producing? What It's not worth anything. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Emails? No way. <laughs> I would love to produce less emails. Um so, all right, we're getting toward the end here. Matt, all right, we're Christians and we're people on the left. And there's, I think, you know, maybe more to say about work. Uh, I, I feel like the right to be lazy, I can keep behind that. I think we should add it to the big UN Declaration of Human Rights that everybody's fighting for. We need uh, human <laughs> rights observers going around making reports of how many people are allowed to be lazy and where and so on. I think I'm sold on that for sure. I agree. And Lafargue is right uh, to call out the ideology work. I'm not totally ready to, you know, buy into the pamphlet entirely. I think maybe some work is important. (laughs) Maybe there's some good things about it. Uh, Maybe you even get a little bit of the sense of, you know, not alienation from from work, but uh, a certain kind of authenticity or or something. I don't know how to say it, but uh, there's more to it. But I don't know, Matt, what do you think? As a Christian on the left, um, what what should we make of Lafargue here? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of like, reckoning we have to do with the stories we tell ourselves about work and like about morality and self-worth and stuff but also i think there are some interesting examples i think even from our own faith tradition that might give us some like insight into kind of being lazy this is the the pivot that leonardo boff always makes and it's the pivot that i think i want to make too but like saint francis a great saint because at the end of the day he's feeding the birds he's like living sort of a life of poverty and not working really you know it's and a great example a great example for christians i mean even uh even the early church too right like jesus ascends to heaven um and the first thing they do is form a commune and they are sharing things in common but not working you know mm-hmm. all that say the christianity that we have that's like trying to trick us into working and kind of tying our our morality uh to work is not the christianity we have to have and uh it's not the one i want either so there you go that's good uh you heard it here first listen to jesus go be like the birds and the lilies uh don't think twice about it just be lazy <laughs> be like Saint, just be like francis just feed feed those birds that's all you gotta do. Feed those birds. Be those birds. Feed those birds. Be those birds. That's my that's my New Year's resolution for twenty twenty three. Be those birds. Be those birds. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com dot slash the Magnificast. 
If you do that, at $2 or more, you can join a great Discord channel community uh, thing <laughs> where you can hear all kinds of stuff about books, about articles, about recipes. Uh, lots of conversations going on there all the time. They're all great. Um, you can find another podcast that we do behind the paywall once a month called The Lock-In, where we talk about goofy stuff, current events, Reddits. We did uh, a paywall or a, a, a non-paywalled um episode earlier this month you can check that out and get a, a sampling of how it goes uh our music is by amari armstrong and our outro is by the illogical spoon and we'll see you next week i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.